Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. Have you ever wanted to explore the underwater realm, but aren't sure how to get dive certified? I've got you covered. Head over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners and grab your copy of my new scuba guide. In it, I cover the different certifying agencies, gear, lingo, and the number one thing to look out for when you're getting certified. This guide will leave you confident in how to become certified and ready to dive in. Head on over to marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners to get your copy and get diving already. marinebio.life slash scuba for beginners. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question. What lies on the bottom of the ocean and shakes? A nervous wreck. How did the two archaeologists fall in love? Carbon dating. My guest today is Maddie McAllister. She is the senior curator for maritime archaeology at James Cook University and the Museum of Tropical Queensland. In her words, Maddie is a maritime archaeologist and shipwreck detective. In today's episode, we chat about the ghost story that inspired Maddie's career, how technology has helped shape the archaeology field, how to identify a shipwreck, and why telling these stories is so important. Please enjoy. Maddie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so stoked to chat with you today. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to a chat. Yeah. So as I was researching you, something that popped up, and this is not why I asked you to be on the show, but something that popped up was that you actually wanted to be a marine biologist, and then you chose the archaeology route. So I'm super curious what made that choice, because these are both careers of passion. So what won out? Yeah, totally. Wow, I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah, I, I wanted, I know, I wanted to be a marine biologist. I wanted, I grew up in the southwest coast of Australia, a little bottom corner um, about as far away from anywhere else in the world as you can get. And I spent my summers at beaches or fishing with my granddad and I just had this love of the ocean. I actually wanted to go and work in Antarctica as a marine biologist. That was, I remember being like 10 or 12 years old and that was my dream. But I also have always had this crazy fascination with history and with old things and understanding humans of the past and maybe at 14 or 15 I was lucky enough to figure out that I could combine those two loves so marine biology became yeah marine archaeology (laughs) yeah and you get to play in the water so your title is your curator of a museum and it's the Museum of Tropical in Queensland, Australia, which is amazing. What does a curator actually do? Yeah, so a curator is a really old-fashioned term, I would say. We do everything from look after collections in museums to create exhibitions, create content online. We still do our research. We're really active researchers and academics as well, but we have this vein of making sure we do community outreach is a really big part of being a curator. We're here to tell these stories. So I am actually here with a 
couple of marine biologist curators as well in the Museum of Tropical Queensland. Yeah, so it's pretty cool. That's awesome. We kind of work together and collaborate. So I heard a story and I would love for you to tell me a little bit more about how Mary Celeste, the story of Mary Celeste influenced your decision to become a marine archaeologist. Yeah, I think if you don't know that story for anyone who's listening, it's this fantastic tale of kind of like a ghost ship or an unsolved mystery from the late 1800s, a cargo ship that was found floating with their sails up in the middle of the ocean and every single person on board was completely missing and not to the point of, you know, that it was just an empty boat, but rumour has it their dinner was left half eaten like they'd stood up and completely vanished and it was one of those tales that was so fascinating and had so many theories from aliens to a fire to pirates to what happened to them and I don't think it's ever completely been solved. So that really spiked my love of those nautical legends and myths and this idea of I guess a fantasized idea of life on the high seas and sailing in wooden ships and what that would have felt like. So that it really is a weird story um, and you have to read more because the theories, conspiracy theories behind it are kind of crazy to read. But, yeah, that sort of for me caught my attention as um, there's tales from the ocean, the human part of the ocean that we don't often hear about. So. What does schooling and education look like for marine archaeology, right? Like there's some special, there's specialization that goes into this. Like it's not just archaeology degrees, but now you put it underwater. I can only imagine how many layers you needed to go through. Yeah. And I guess the marine biologist listening or or wanting to be marine biologist, it's, it's kind of similar. You know, you have to go to university you have to get a foundation degree. If you want to pursue anything at a higher academic level, you need a postgraduate degree of some sort. You don't necessarily have to be a diver. I think that's a really great thing for those who can't dive. You can work on the coast and you can work on that wonderful, you know, intertidal space in between the land and the ocean. But it certainly is niche and the specialization you get into can be really interesting. I have friends who are specialists in, you know, 17th century European shipbuilding to solving oil problems in the Pacific Ocean on World War II wrecks to people looking at submerged cultural landscapes from, you know, 40 to 80,000 years ago. So it is super diverse as a field to study. It's so wild to think about. So, Actually, I want to go to your master's. I thought it was really fun. You actually studied American whaling ships, which I read The Heart of the Sea a few months ago. And it was like mind boggling, like just the amount of effort and the distance that sailors used to go to try to get oil, to get, you know, to get whales, to get oil, like boggle my mind. But and now I didn't realize they made it all the way to Australia. So could you please chat about your your, uh, master's? Yes. And I found 
wailing this crazy sort of taboo topic that no one wanted to talk about because we love whales so much. Um, certainly in Australia, we we you know wait for them to have their migration on the coast and people study them and they're so beautiful that there was this hidden side of our history that had to do with very early colonial sort of aspects of American whalers and sealers. And they actually were here, I'd even say, earlier than a lot of the British were on the West Australian coastline. And they came from those towns and cities in the States where an entire town would invest all their money into one whale ship that would go off for five to seven years and, you know, their, their brothers and their husbands and their fathers would go away for that time and they may not ever come back and often they didn't come back and that entire town lost all of their savings and investment in these whale ships. But what I found really fascinating was that wherever they went along the coastline, they became this sort of well-known feature of the Australian coastline. You know, people would wait for the American whalers to turn up and trade things They were well known for knowing the coast incredibly well, for having worked on it for a long time, that the European colonial people in Western Australia actually learnt from the American whalers about how to whale from that coastline. And then I think when you take it a little bit further and you think about what it would have been like to be a whaler on a whale ship for five to seven years, they're not those fantastic graceful beautiful cutter ships that you see paintings of they were big robust uh, like fatter ships that were literally factory ships and they were constantly boiling down blubber and cutting up whales they would have smelt really bad it would have been close quarters it would have been incredibly hard work I don't think it particularly would have been enjoyable but um, we can't really know for sure (laughs) right yeah. It doesn't sound appealing to me. Be away from like your home and your family with like, and like forced into, I mean, you work all the time, right? For years. It's not like they're gone for, I mean, even to be gone for a few months would be a long time, but it's years you would be gone. Yeah. Mind boggling. So what prompted you to get, to go all the way and get your PhD? Uh, I, so I did my master's and I actually got a job back in my hometown in Western Australia at the museum there and I worked as an assistant curator and that museum is quite prestigious uh, for maritime archaeology. The people working there had worked there since the 70s and were sort of the fathers of the field in Australia. So it was amazing to work for them and I just happened to be there at a time when they won a massive funding project through the Australian Research Council, which is really renowned here, to reinvestigate the last 40 years of maritime archaeological research in Western Australia with new technology to see if they could answer questions that couldn't have been asked in the 70s, 80s and 90s, but could be asked now with the tools we have. And they had an opening for a PhD on that project. And I really love research. I love being able to dive completely into one thing. And I'd say a PhD is the only time in your life you are completely devoted to one project that you do yourself and you manage. So um, yeah, I applied for that and I got the PhD as a part of that program for three, three and a half years. 
So I wouldn't say I ever aspired to get a PhD. It kind of was a couple of things that fell into place together. But I'm very glad I did it quite young out of uni in some ways. I didn't wait five to ten years. I, you know, had a couple of years off from my master's and then went into it. So I had a little bit of a balance, but I'm glad I sort of got that massive massive achievement in my life over pretty early I think (laughs) (laughs) and we're done and not looking back yeah yeah pretty much pretty much (laughs) that's so funny what were some of the questions that you could ask now that couldn't be answered in the 70s 80s and 90s yeah that's really cool so I worked one of my case studies was looking at a site that had been excavated completely in the 70s, the Batavia shipwreck off the West Australian coast, which is a really infamous wreck. It sunk in the Abrolhos Islands in 1629 and actually has an incredible story of murders and mutiny and um, like lots of crazy things that went on on those islands after the ship had wrecked. So it's very famous in the Netherlands It had its journals published, I think, maybe a decade or so after the wreck, so quite a contemporary account. And then to be excavated completely in the 70s, you know, the whole sort of stern, the back of the ship is on display in the museum in Fremantle. You get an idea of the size of it. But we're talking about the 70s. So their recording of these sites were all analogue. It was with, you know, black and white photography or colour photography on film. So you were limited to 24 to 36 images per film. And what I wanted to do was to see if regular archaeologists like myself could pick up a camera nowadays and apply some of the really amazing 3D recording technology we have just by taking photos. So this site in particular also sits right on the edge of a reef. You're in the good season, you get one out of six days you can get to the shipwreck. So you have to get in fast and do your work quick. So I also had this idea of, you know, if you only ever get to a remote shipwreck once every couple of years and you get one day on the site, how can you record it in the best possible way? And digital photography was the way that I could then take back and turn into a 3D model so that people who may never ever get the chance to go to this site can virtually explore it or at least have some understanding of what the shipwreck site looked like before and after it was excavated. That is so cool. So how does that actually get turned into a 3D model? Like this is totally new to me. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't say... Like since my PhD, I certainly haven't delved much more into the technology side of it. And I'm not a computer whiz. I'm not an IT specialist. I learnt running on the ground doing a PhD, but the whole point was that it didn't need to be a specialist that did this. So yeah, it's actually become one of the most reliable tools that maritime archaeologists use now because we are obsessed with the detail of sites that are often only... 50 metres long and 15 metres wide. So if we can record as accurately, as quickly and as much as possible, this this 3D modelling really gives us a huge advantage to understand the site as we excavate it. And I think maybe something that people who aren't archaeologists don't understand is that we're literally destroying the thing that we love so much. You know, when you excavate something, 
you're destroying it. So you have to record every single aspect of it. You have to be able to recreate that when you come back to the office because that's all you've got sometimes, plus the objects that you come back with. Yeah. So that is something I want to dive into. Like we've talked about excavation and, you know, what does that really mean? And what does that look like? To me, excavation means like literally digging it out and removing it. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm pretty known for if I ever have to work on a land site, whinging and whinging because I don't like digging with shovels and digging buckets and buckets of soil. The guys that work on land archaeology are like pretty hardcore. For us underwater. Um, I'm sure they're saying the same thing about you. Those marine archaeologists are pretty hardcore. <laughs> Underwater, it's so different. Like, I mean, for one, you can float above your site, right? You don't ever have to touch it if you don't want to, whereas on land they have to stand and sit in it and work in it. And we can't dig with shovels underwater and buckets. That just doesn't work if anyone has ever tried digging a hole you know if you're sitting in the beach maybe you're younger as a kid trying to dig a hole in the sand it just caves back in straight away we use tools called underwater dredges which are like a vacuum system that slowly um, a really low low pressure you slowly sift away sand and vacuum the sand up in there to uncover it and essentially you're you're excavating the, the ship itself or whatever site you're looking at kind of layer by layer, but the layer isn't sediment, it's it's parts of the ship. So you might work through the deck down, for example, or the cargo layer, and then you remove that layer and then you record what's below it. So yeah, it's kind of the it's the same principle. We just use different tools underwater. Hand fanning and dredges, pretty much. Yeah, there's still some of like the dustiness that comes to it, but it's just silt instead of actual dust that you're like shifting around. No flies. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So when you go down, I mean, it, this kind of sounds like a lot of equipment. Is that normal? You have the drudge that is with you and like, I mean, standard like paper and pencil in case you need to communicate underwater or record things that you see, right? So like camera, paper, pencil, and a dredge, which is a little extra I'm not gonna lie <laughs> yeah yeah pretty extra yeah excavations are a huge project we don't do a lot of them anymore or certainly not to the scale that they were you know 30 40 years ago because of the cost of things but also the health and safety aspects of it so a lot of what we do kind of sometimes falls into commercial standards for diving at the moment. And even if it isn't the scientific diving side of it, we use full face masks and voice comms so you constantly can be chatting to the surface. Sometimes your visibility might not be great, so you're working with your hands only and interpreting it as you go with your hands. But it it will entail often teams of you know, 20 to 30 people working in pairs on the floor um, with all the support system around you plus putting the equipment in. So it becomes a very huge project really, really quickly. And I'm not sure a, a lot of other marine biology projects that require the scale and the equipment and the logistics that excavating underwater can do. Of course, then if you add depth to it, some of the sites here in Australia might sit in 
four to nine metres, but the famous one excavated in Queensland, Pandora, sits at 30 metres below the surface. So you add the depth, you're limited with time as well. So your, your project extends either side of it by months pretty much. Yeah. But not all of your field work is excavating, right? When you get to go and play in the field, right? What are you actually doing? And and I'm curious because shipwrecks make really great habitat, right? You get all the epiphytes and all this growth on it and all the animals. Like how does that come into play when you're looking at these these shipwrecks underwater? Yeah, I would say a lot of my research at the moment really focuses on wrecks on the Great Barrier Reef here and that sounds like a tropical, wonderful paradise, but these reefs are brutal to anything that lives on them or is is on them like wrecks and it's often there's not a lot left but anchors and cannon and heavy things that have become concreted in that coral growth and are sort of cemented to the reef. So a lot of what I do is that recording. A lot of the sites here, you know, we, we think there's over... 900 wrecks on the reef and we've found 114 of them and of those you know we know the identity of 20 or 30 of them so there's so much work to do just by recording and understanding what's there and that's a lot of what I do so it's taking the cameras down to record it's taking mylar paper like underwater boards and measuring and recording and understanding how the site has become how it is today before we look any further at it. And I, I love that wrecks have become these artificial reefs. You know, I love that we now sink ships to become artificial reefs. And that is probably the first thing people think about when I say a shipwreck that you can dive on. They think of these massive structures underwater. But the other ones that are smaller actually, you know, they give protection to sea life in those really dynamic zones. And that's a really cool thing to see. And maritime archaeologists are actually starting to investigate what the aspects of climate change and the changes in salinity and water temperature and O2 are going to do to those sites in the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years because anything that affects the marine life out there is also going to affect the cultural heritage that's sitting on those those reefs pretty much. Of course. So 900 wrecks, that's a lot. And it kind of brings up that good point. Like you're like, oh, it's beautiful, tropical, but it's a really hostile environment. Like there's a reason why it's called the Great Barrier Reef. Yes. It's a barrier to entry. (laughs) Yeah, it literally is this, you know, thousands of kilometers long barrier for shipping to come into that does create really nice calm waters sometimes behind the reef but if you think about not just the last what two three hundred years of European seafaring around the Coral Sea and the Great Barrier Reef think longer about you know Indigenous and First Nations people traveling in massive outrigger canoes across the ocean here it's long been known as a really dangerous and difficult feature to navigate around. So what's the oldest wreck that you've found? Yeah, the oldest wreck on the Great Barrier Reef that we've found is actually HMS Pandora. So that wrecked uh, in 1791 
on the reef and was found. So it's not, you know, in, in the scale of things, it's actually a really young wreck. It's certainly not the wrecks that are thousands of years old in the Mediterranean. It's it's not looking at that deep history of cultural landscapes. It's, yeah, it's 230-ish years old. I want to come back. There's wrecks that are preserved in the Mediterranean that are thousands of years old. How are they preserved? Yeah, so the crazy thing for archaeologists is that often things underwater preserve 10 times better than they do on land. They just have to find the right conditions. So that is an anaerobic environment. So they do have to be buried, like they have to be buried under sediment and the rule of thumb is roughly 30 centimetres. I do not know what that is in feet, sorry. It's not much. It's, It's like about a foot. Roughly a foot. And you know you've got an anaerobic environment when organic material is black underneath. So... all the oxygen and the light is out of there and it kills the bacteria. So it creates this like perfect way for organics to survive for hundreds and thousands of years. Some of the older shipwrecks have been found in the Black Sea, I believe, and they're they're really deep. They're not buried, but they're like hundreds of metres deep sitting there in freezing, freezing cold, dark conditions. It's like the perfect environment for preserving organics. Okay, freezing cold and dark, I understand. And yeah, I guess the anaerobic. You hear about the Great Lakes in the US, right? Like they're huge. That's why they're called the Great Lakes. And they have they have perfectly preserved shipwrecks because it's fresh, freezing cold water. It doesn't de- degrade things quite like salt does. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess they wouldn't have ship swims either, I think. I'm not sure about the Great Lakes. So, so shipworms are a really... You see it in jetty pylons and things where um, there's all the holes and the sort of honeycombing that's made by a teredo nivalis, a ship's worm, and that was sort of the the scourge of any wooden ships. That's why they sheathed them in everything from tar and felt to sacrificial wood to copper sheathing eventually to stop those worms and the marine growth. But, yeah, it's funny, you know, maritime archaeology in Australia is is very young and I remember Jeremy Green saying to me at the West Australian Museum that when he first came out here from the UK, the people he looked up to, his mentors, were like, you'll never find a shipwreck in Australia. It's too dynamic. It's too harsh. You'll never find a wreck that preserves really well on the reef there and in those environments. And we've proved them wrong over the last 40 years that you know, it can it can bury, it can bury under coral growth. Coral growth and concretion is such a crazy thing that sort of seals that wreck into the reef and creates that perfect environment. So it might not be the nice Mediterranean, you know, in the field seasons where you can dive for days and beautiful 20-metre visibility and, and beautiful environments. It's a bit harsher than that, but we still have some incredible preservation. It's amazing. It's amazing what gets preserved, right? And like what what perseveres, I guess, is the better way to turn it, to say that. It really is. I kind of wanted to come back to Pandora because I've heard you tell this story on other podcasts and it's a hell of a story. But with that, I know people were looking for the HMS Pandora, right? And that's like how you, you know, how you found it and how you decided to excavate it and really preserve it in 
you know, better way than leaving it out in the ocean. How do you find the shipwrecks or yeah, I guess, how do you find them? Are you like physically going out? Do you get physical reports of shipwrecks that you go and investigate? Or are you looking at logs and are like, I want to find this one that, which is kind of how it seems to be. That's how Pandora was found. So the wrecks that often get excavated are the famous ones that people have been looking for for a long time. And that'll be kind of like a treasure hunt, right? Like you've got all these recorded accounts, you've got um, newspaper reports, or you know that it wrecked roughly here at this time. So you narrow your field down a little bit like that. Other wrecks, and I think this is a wonderful thing, are found mostly by regular everyday people who are out in in the water all the time. So it's fishermen or it's freedivers or tourists and snorkelers or people working on reefs that will notice something that's not quite like everything else on the reef. And, and they're the ones to put in reports to say they think they've found something. So there's kind of those two ways. But then, you know, say you do have a narrowed down area, you know that a particular wreck is within a five-kilometre stretch of reef or 10-kilometre stretch of reef, we use a lot of remote sensing tools, which is then our sort of next step. So before you even get in the water, it's things from magnetometer toad searches, so looking for anomalies in the Earth's magnetic field. Canon can give you a blip. Of course, the massive steel shipwrecks give you a huge blip. And then you can also use side scan sonar. So some of the greatest sort of images of deep water wrecks or wrecks in a decent amount of water are from that sonar imagery, which allows us to cover a lot of ground before you even get in the water. Are you going down physically divers in the water or do you use robots as well? A bit of both. I certainly... I love to have anything I work on. I make the, I was going to say excuse, the reason that I have to get into the water, that has to be um, a part of it. But certainly there's limits to us, right? And some of, you know, I'm I'm not a tech diver. I'm not a deep, deep water diver. And there are um, incredible shipwrecks off our coast that sit in a couple of hundred metres of water. Or further, there's some of our World War II shipwrecks that sit in two kilometres of water. And, and you need to use remote tools like ROVs for that. That just comes with a bit of a cost and a use. So your reasoning has to be pretty good, yeah. If you get these reports, right, like you just found something that didn't quite match the reef and you go out and you're like, all right, this warrants remote sensing. Are you trying to identify the ship? I mean, it seems very challenging to identify something that's encrusted in coral and other epibiotes. <laughs> yeah, it totally, it actually really is. That's my pet love. And I see more of my research going down this way of identifying shipwrecks, but particularly wooden shipwrecks. And, you know, when I say that they're on the reef and there's not a lot left of them, what clues are left behind that you can identify becomes your sort of your tools to then go back to those archives and those records and, you know, you might be able to narrow down that 10 ships were wrecked in this area that haven't been found. So you then have to go and look at how those ships were built and what was put into them and what matches what is left on the site. So 
the really great thing about wooden shipbuilding over the ages is that we have these clear periods in time where we changed or advanced how we were building ships. So you can see that in a shipwreck and you can you can match those clues together. So I would say that if anybody reports a wreck, yeah, the first thing we do is, you know, is we go out there and we record the site, understand the site with the whole aim of trying to figure out which ship it was that wrecked there, essentially. To start with, that's the first one. Do you have a favourite? (laughs) I actually, I got to work on a recently reported shipwreck in the far northern Great Barrier Reef, so right up near the Torres Straits. That was reported by a tourist charter boat that had people that go out every year and they are in the water six or seven hours a day. They just snorkel and snorkel and love it so much. And these people on this boat found this site, you know, by seeing something that wasn't a normal bit of coral. And it's a really small site. It sits on the lee side of the reef. It's really well protected. There's not a lot left of it apart from ballast stones so stones that the ship had to keep it upright but there's a fantastic two pieces of a wheat mill so what you would use back in the day these massive bits of stone that fit together that grind down wheat and turn it into flour sitting there on the reef just completely encrusted one is upside down and the other half is sitting upright and they're just such a beautiful beautiful part of a wreck they're sitting there they've got coral around them and fish around them they're only in like a meter and a half of water and I've been working on this wreck for a while now I managed to be able to take some samples from that site so some copper fastenings and some copper sheathing which will help with that ID but it's a mystery to me it's a little little shipwreck that wrecked quite a long time ago it looks like it was mostly wooden built so no iron frames in it and it had this wheat flour mill, which I ended up figuring out is actually probably more likely a rice flour mill. So then there becomes this sort of really awesome side story is, is this not a European ship? Is it a, a ship from one of our neighbouring countries here in, in Southeast Asia that has wrecked on the reef? So um, it takes a lot of time. We've got to piece together like all of these clues. And I guess you can never be 100% sure, but you can have some pretty definite ideas of the wrecks. I like the little shipwrecks for sure. <laughs> I feel like that would be the smaller it is, the greater the challenge, right? Because you have less to work with. Less to work with and often they're not as important as the big ones. So the the historical records around it aren't going to be as big or as well reported say as a 500 ton ship that went missing with a lot of investment or people that never came back so they're the ones that fall through the cracks a little bit so i have a confession i have dove shipwrecks well one was actually wrecked two were actually wrecked some were just you know artificial reefs whatever and i have found that man-made structures underwater specifically shipwrecks freak me out I will do it because there's some cool stuff on them, but they freak me out. I guess it's like haunting. They, they, they're very haunting under the water. And you like you, you investigate the stories. Like, you know, every single one has a story. Does that thought cross your mind too? Yeah, they are. Yeah. Haunting is right. And certainly, yeah, like one of the big wrecks off our coast here. 
SS Yongala, wrecked in 1911, and everyone sort of gives it this nickname of Australia's Titanic because it went missing during a cyclone and no one was ever found. 122 people on board, the ship disappeared completely. It wasn't found until the 1950s and it sits only about 60 kilometres off the coast in between the reef and the mainland. Uh, It's a 100-metre-long ship. It's like 300 feet. That's a huge ship. Yeah, it's a huge ship. It sits in 30 metres of water and it's on its one side, so it's kind of tilted over, but it's almost completely intact like that, like it is a ship sitting on the floor and it's become this oasis. It's a famous dive site because it just has massive fish and sharks. There's a Queensland groper fish that lives there called V-Dub because it's literally the size of a small car that lives there. I don't go too close to her because she's a little bit scary and she could definitely eat you. We we have we have similarly sized groupers here. We call them Goliath groupers. <laughs> no, thank you. They're watching you with a giant eye. But, but like amazing, right, that this, this wreck that was such a tragic, horrible thing has become an oasis. When maritime archaeologists worked on it in the 80s, there were visible human remains inside still. So there were bones that they could see, people's leg bones and things. It's a completely protected site. You can't, you can dive around it, but you can't dive into it for those reasons, for because it is a grave site. And that's something that maritime archaeologists always have to think about. Are you working on a wreck that is a grave site to someone? And and what is how do you weigh up the significance of your research versus interfering or destroying in some way a grave site of people, particularly if it's in really recent memory like that and we have photos of the people um, on board. Even if you're looking at it much older, you know, a couple of hundred years or thousands of years, there's always that sort of haunting aspect that you could be the person who sees something that hasn't been seen for hundreds of years, that the last people to see that or touch this or use this particular object died with the ship and that's a really crazy haunting thing but I think that kind of brings that humanity level to it and a way for us to tell some of those really lovely stories or imagine what these people were like um, back then however long ago it was. That's a good point it's not just like a pile of rubbish on the bottom of the ocean floor right it's like it's telling a story. Mm -hmm. So coming back to Pandora I think we have to tell the story because it is flipping wild <laughs> and, but it got excavated. So we'll, let's, let's go back. Will you please tell the story of Pandora? Yes, I can tell the story. So HMS Pandora was quite a famous ship in the British Navy. It actually is sort of a sequel story, which not many people know, but it's the sequel to the famous story Mutiny on the Bounty, which is a really well-known naval historical tale of mutineers of the bounty ship that had spent months in the South Pacific collecting breadfruit trees to take to plantations and um, the crew had spent so long there that they'd actually married into the local Indigenous peoples on the islands and didn't want to leave. It was like a paradise for them. They didn't want to go back to dreary, horrible England. 
they wanted to stay in the Pacific. So sorry for all my English listeners. <laughs> it's too cold over there. <laughs> all the mutineers thought so, I should say that. So they mutinied, they took uh, the bounty and they put the loyal crew and the captain in some long boats who eventually made it to um, Indonesia, I believe, who got help and made their way back to England. In the meantime, the mutineers sort of settled in Fiji and actually most of them ended up on Pitcairn Island, which is this crazy remote island um, in the South Pacific, and they ended up burning the bounty there to get rid of the evidence and there are still descendants from the bounty um, mutineers living on Pitkin Island. It's, it's quite incredible. But what that kicked off was this how dare you ever cross the British Navy and how dare you mutiny and take one of, you know, the Navy's prize ships. So Pandora was sent to chase them, to chase them across the South Pacific and hunt down the mutineers and bring bounty home. They had no idea that bounty had been burnt. So they left England, they travelled around South America, stopped in Rio de Janeiro and then came up the South Pacific. They actually missed seeing Pitcairn Island by like two hours of sailing, like the sort of report goes. If they just sailed two hours closer, they would have seen it and stopped and found Fletcher Christian, the leader of the mutineers. But then they spent weeks and months trailing through all these islands in the South Pacific and they actually ended up finding 14 of the mutineers and building this makeshift prison on the back of the boat called Pandora's Box that held the mutineers. There's two reasons for that. One was that they were up with open air to keep them healthy, although you could argue that they were chained by their feet in two rows and this box was only a metre and a bit tall so they couldn't really stand up, they couldn't move. It was filled with rats and maggots and was fairly gross. So the second reason sounds more plausible was that the captain didn't want the mutineers anywhere near his crew. He was so worried that they would incite another mutiny that they were stuck on Pandora's box. After a couple of months they decided they'd done the best they could couldn't find Bounty, couldn't find the rest of the mutineers and decided to head home the 14 that they had. This time they didn't go back around South America. They decided to cross Torres Strait between northern Australia and Indonesia, Papua New Guinea, and spent quite a few days trying to find a way through. When they thought they'd found a way through, they'd drop a boat in to go and have a closer look and it was while they were picking up one of their long boats that they realised they'd been pushed by the current and actually hit and grounded on the reef. The amazing thing is that actually has preserved Pandora was that they managed to refloat the ship off this reef to just behind the reef and after about eight hours of um, pumping, their pumps failed and so the ship sank incredibly quickly in a matter of minutes behind the reef down into that 30 metres of water onto a sandy sea floor. So approximately 135 people died in the wrecking because it was so quick. A couple of the mutineers died, but they actually released most of them and got them out as well. And then there's this fantastic tale of the survivors making their way through the Torres Strait past the islands and up to Indonesia to get help. And that's where the story sort of ended and people obviously were looking for 
the Pandora for a long time because they knew it had to be somewhere near that Torres Strait. It wasn't found until 1977, so quite a long time after it was wrecked. By not by a professional maritime archaeologist, by people who were fascinated by the story and had spent so long looking for it. They found it with an aerial magnetometer survey, a blip, and then a dive um, following that actually showed the anchor and the the kitchen stove sitting upright off the sea, but the rest of it was buried under the sand. And that's where the museum enters the story. That is wild. So literally the anchor is what caused the blip on the radar. Yeah, yeah, the anchors and the cannon. Yeah, they're big. They're like a couple of hundred kilos. No, I mean, they're more than that. They'd have to be 500 kilos worth of iron in a cannon. Quite a lot. And the anchor's huge. Yeah, yeah. That's so crazy. So, but, okay, to go back to our early discussion, this was a grave site, right? So how come that warranted excavation? Yeah, so I mean, you kind of have to remember that the 70s and 80s are a really early period of maritime archaeology in Australia to the point where there was so much concern that illegal salvage of these sites would happen and people would damage them looking for things that there had to be priority put on a systematic ethical excavation of some of these sites. And given the significance of it, the global tale the, the preservation, I think, after maritime archaeologists went there in 1979, the level of preservation they expected to find under the seafloor was also one of those pushes for it, which then saw nine seasons of excavation throughout the 80s and 90s on this shipwreck. Not in a row, every sort of couple of years given funding and safety changes as well. But yeah, we do, we actually have three, at least three human remains in the collection here from Pandora that were found, which do sort of give you an idea of the level of preservation of, of those objects and the people that were buried there on this site. It's, it's pretty incredible. It really is. It's a long, huge project, right? Yeah, yeah. And I would say, you know, what, how many? So over those nine seasons, each one was at least a couple of weeks or a couple of months. There are over 6,400 objects from Pandora in the collection here at the museum. That's a huge amount of artifacts. It's a huge amount of archaeological data sitting here. And, you know, there's there's so much work to do. A lot of this was conserved and takes years to conserve so you couldn't really research a lot of it while it's being conserved for dry sort of viewing which waterlogged material has to go through a really rigorous process so there's there's huge amount of work for me to do even now what 20 plus years after these excavations that is sitting there waiting to be done it's pretty awesome and there's still hundreds of more shipwrecks out there and planes. Doesn't that number include planes as well? It does now, yeah. I mean, it, it always has, but just a couple of years ago we got legal protection for aircraft underwater, which is a really fantastic thing. It was sort of just in time for the World War II aircraft to hit 75 years of age. So any any shipwreck or aircraft wreck in Australia 75 years 
or older, whether we've found it or not, is completely protected by law, which is really amazing to to have you know our country understand these heritage sites are non-renewable resources. Once gone, that's it. You you won't ever get a 18th century shipwreck wrecking again, you know? That is not something I ever would have thought about like that, you know, but you're right. You're right. (laughs) That's cool. So you wanted to be a marine scientist and you spent a lot of your childhood, I mean, a lot of your life playing on the water. How distracted do you get by some of the fun things that you're guaranteed to see while you play on the Great Barrier Reef? Because I would be like, oh, I'm doing my work. I'm doing my work. Oh, that's a cute fish. (laughs) Generally, it's the photographers that get more distracted, I would say. You come back and there's photos of like fish and coral that aren't anything to do with the shipwreck. But no, I actually really love the fish like wrasse the ones that are really inquisitive that when you're doing something on the seafloor and you're staring up a bit of silt, they come in and sort of see what you're doing and if they can steal a snack or something from you. So the wrasse are really cool fish like that and probably sea snakes because they really don't, they're not scared of you at all. They they have no problems like curling around your leg and hanging around you and then taking off again. That's kind of a really cool thing. Yeah, so I I like those ones that interact with you, but I must say a lot of the time we are so, you know, we're on the floor, we're focused on what's in front of us. We probably miss the most amazing things that go swim past us because you're not even, you're just paying attention on the floor pretty much. Oh, whale just swam over our heads. I have no idea. It was just a cloud of silts. (laughs) That's wild. I want to look up. So I live where I live in Florida. We're on the Treasure Coast. And it's called that because all the shipwrecks and the treasure and people still find coins like after hurricanes we will find still find coins on the beach. So it's kind of wild. Supposedly, there's still tons of money still, you know, in the ocean. I'm trying to remember how old the St. George's Valentine shipwreck is, but it's I can literally swim to it. It's in like 15 feet of water. So divide by three, that's like a meter and two meters. So more than that, three meters of water. And on a calm day, you can see it from the beach and it's just like a dark blob. And all it is, is just the bones of it. And it doesn't have, it didn't have anything super exciting on it. it had wood. It was carrying like mahogany lumber from the Caribbean up the coast. And it got hit by a hurricane and, it wrecked and it actually wrecked in like the most perfect spot. Cause we had built uh, along the Florida coastline. There's only one left, but there used to be 12 houses of refuge. So it was specifically for that because nobody lived on the coastline in Florida, which is really hard to think about because it's so populated now, but these houses of refuge were for shipwrecked sailors. And so they, this place or this ship literally shipwrecked like, exactly in front of the house of refuge i'm like well you couldn't have picked a better spot and it's still there the house of refuge is still there it's the only one standing still and the shipwreck is still there and it's all you can see is like the bones and there's like some ballast like scattered further away but it kind of gave me appreciation for because yeah you do see like the artificial reefs that are whole intact ships and like that's what people have in their heads when they picture shipwrecks and that's kind of what hollywood portrays too right like we found the boat 
Thanks, Disney. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not, it's not really like that. It's like bits and pieces. No, I'd, I'd explain to people. I mean, there's a range, right? There's some that are incredible, like Vasa in Sweden that sank as a complete ship and almost, you know, 400 years later got floated back into its home port. But that's a real, real rare example. Most of them, I would say, look like aircraft wrecks. If you imagine, you know what a plane looks like. And when you see an aircraft wreck in the news, you see a few features you recognize, but the rest of it is this sprawled smash of stuff. And that is what a shipwreck is like on a reef, essentially, or on the seafloor, if it's been, you know, a really dynamic, like a cyclone or a hurricane or something. I think that's crazy. But I do, I mean, maybe a word on treasure there. I know Florida is really renowned, even, you know, us Aussies know Florida really well because, you know, that was the one place I think where salvage is legal, right? You can you can buy a ticket and you can go out or you can get approval to legally salvage shipwrecks for profit. And that was one because people fought for that in the 70s. So in Australia, we could have gone the same way. We could have had the same thing, but we actually went to preservation of these sites for future, which was all a push from the public. So I find Florida a really fascinating landscape for maritime archaeology. It must be a really incredible, like it's so filled with that history and those treasure ships and people who love it, both sides, both sides, salvagers and archaeologists love the history, right? That's why we do what we do. And I've worked on ships with treasure on them. So the Dutch ships on the West Australian coast have thousands and thousands of silver coins that were excavated off them. And at first, right, they're real pretty, they're shiny, they're, you know, giant silver pieces of eight or something and that's amazing. But after a while, they're really boring. I, you know, I, I know there are people that love numismatics and coins, but there's not a lot you can learn after, you know, recording a coin, a coin after coin, except for the date on it and what's on it. And for me, the treasure, like the treasure on ships is the other things that you find. Um, we have a pair of shoes that still has someone's footprints in them. Someone wore them for years and years and it it has their footprint in them and they're from a wreck 200 plus years old. To me, that's more treasure than any amount of silver coins, but I think that's what makes me an archaeologist and not a salvager as well. So somehow it's those bits and pieces that remind you that a human was on board, not just profit, that are the treasure, yeah. And, like, that's crazy to me, someone's feet print is still in a shoe it's amazing that is amazing so what happens with all the pieces of eight do they go to different museums they are in oh yeah so maybe that's a really interesting thing is that archaeologists always fight for a collection to stay whole so even if we have a thousand silver coins we won't sell off silver coins to make a profit or send them to private museums they all should stay and do stay as one collection because you never know what technology you have in five years let alone 50 that you could use to find out something amazing about them if if you separate your collection and spread it off or you sell it off to private hands accessing that in the future is really really 
difficult to do. That doesn't mean we don't loan them. We absolutely loan. I have material from Pandora on loan at the moment for exhibitions. But you keep it all together because it is, it's data. It's a knowledge base. It's not things to, to sell off. Yeah. I like that perspective. It's, yeah, it's a new concept because, yeah, we have the museum here who, like, it was for profit. It was all for profit. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And you can, like, go touch a silver bar and you pay to get into the museum to touch the silver or the gold bar excuse me the gold bar oh there's always it's never truly black and white hey and I maybe think about that museum and how many maritime archaeologists it's inspired from kids that go off and become actual maritime archaeologists from that so there's always you know Hollywood is the same the movies inspire us ultimately right so there's got to be some good that comes of them And there's something to be said for touching and holding old objects that is like is crazy. I don't know if it's a pseudo thing, like it's just in your head, but the ability to hold, you know, like a cannonball, for example, for people just blows people's minds more than a lot of other things. Yeah, it's something I wish museums were able to do more exhibitions where you could touch and hold the objects. Because we're also tactile. Yes, yeah. I, I think it, I don't know, it resonates us with us a lot more, yeah. <laughs> more touching museums. More touching museums. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I feel like I could chat with this all day. This is really fun for me. But I have a series of questions at the end of each episode that I like to ask. What's your favorite sea creature? Oh, sea creature. Gosh. I would have to say sea lions because I love dogs and the connection, like if you're ever lucky enough to have a sea lion swim around you or a seal, they just are so curious and inquisitive. I find them you can play with them too, right? Like try to do loop-de-loops in the water with them. So <laughs> I think sea lions would be my favorite. Yeah. Cute. It's a good answer. I just watched a video the other day of a guy playing on, I don't know where in the world it was, but he was playing on the beach with his dog and throwing a ball and then a sea lion jumped in on the action and it was the cutest thing. That's amazing. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> Best game of fetch ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> What does the ocean mean to you? Yeah, I think my answer will be really different to a lot of other people's. I know that it's this wonderful resource of life and it's this incredible thing, but for me it's like this extra dimension of humans to it. That, you know, we've we've sailed on it for thousands of years. We've lived on it, worked on it, worked in it yet we're not really built for it. So it has this really inspiring yet scary side to the ocean. So I think to me the ocean means more than just the physical parts of it. I love the intangible side of it too. It's it's sort of like a temple you can go to to reflect on everything, but also remember that you're just a visitor there a lot of the time. It's a really good way to put it. I wish we weren't visitors. I wish we could live, you know, under the water. But Sprout some gills in a tail. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. If you are given a blank check, unlimited funding for any project or projects up to three, what would you use the monies for? Yeah. Oh gosh, I would. I would run a project where I could go up and down the reef and search for wrecks and record the unfound wrecks, hopefully identify some shipwrecks. So I'd, I'd sort of run a project where it wasn't about the big famous shipwrecks like Pandora or Batavia or anything. It was one to sort of fill the gaps of the little wrecks on the reef. But also who wouldn't want to spend weeks and months going up and down the Great Barrier Reef <laughs> looking for shipwrecks? That sounds like a pretty good deal. <laughs> yes. I am not a marine archaeologist and like, sign me up. Let's do it. Sign me up. Sign me up. I'll get over the creepiness factor. <laughs> what is your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this could be an epic day on the field where just like everything worked well, or it could be a day where things happened and it makes a really great story now. This is such a good question. Hmm. I guess I always like to tell my friends of like the craziest diving experience I had, which was on a shipwreck of the West Australian coast called Corioda Asia, which is quite an early, early 1800s Portuguese vessel that's right on the outer reef. So getting to it is hairy and it's often got a lot of crazy swell that hits it. And I was quite young working as an assistant curator and I remember getting kitted up on this on the museum boat and they had to wait between swell sets and then tear in and it was essentially like go, 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 jump off the back of the boat into the water and then the boat took off to get out of the swell and we just went down as quick as you could to find this site and it was to record it. We hadn't visited it in years and years but also that is the one time I've ever recovered coins from a shipwreck because they'd been They'd rolled loose, so it was about collecting them before they disappeared. But I was between crevices in a reef, so I remember holding, wedging myself into a reef, like with my legs and my arms pushed against it as swell would hit you. Everyone would hold on to something. like You could feel your mask pulling off you in the swell. And then the swell would go and you'd have, you know, two minutes to quickly do your work and record everything and then wedge yourself back into the reef again and go again. And that was just such a crazy diving experience. That one I think will forever stick with me um, because it was beautiful visibility too. Like it was crystal clear, gorgeous water. But the other one is probably one of my first ever dives on a wreck when I was working for the museum and going down and seeing this shipwreck that had become uncovered. So it had been buried for a long time and we went back out to record it and the wooden hull, like the planking on the hull, literally looked like this ship had sunk yesterday and it was a 100 and something years old. Like you could see the saw marks in the wood from where it had been and I just remember sitting there staring at this wood and all the pieces kind of fit in for me that, you know, I understood finally that preservation. I understood that there can be incredible sites that you can 
work on and that and that we have preserved but I think for me it was this weird like a real connection with someone who built that ship a long time ago you know here it is it's incredibly preserved I can see your saw marks in the wood it looks like it went down yesterday that will stick for me which may not be a really exciting story for anybody but that is sort of one that that hit home and has stayed with me for a really long time that was really amazing yeah connected you with your work I connected you with the past like really right yeah it was amazing yeah (laughs) also I can't imagine diving in conditions where my mask is being pulled from my face because the swell is so strong and you're working it's impressive yeah I'm gonna remember that one for a long time (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so at the end of each episode i like to i like to leave the audience with a conservation has to go home and take into the world what would you like my audience to take from your episode today maybe two things so first if anywhere in the world you are that you're interested in shipwrecks and maybe like me you thought you wanted to be a marine biologist but this sounds amazing i'd encourage you to go to your local museums and or your local beach and your local shore and think about the wrecks that are maybe just off the coast, you know, that you've never been to that are sitting there for you to explore. And the second one is is just along those lines, which I'm sure everyone understands, is that idea of if you pick something up and move it off a shipwreck, you, you do lose information about it that archaeologists find super valuable. So that whole idea of, take only photos and leave only bubbles is it applies to shipwrecks as well think of them as that non-renewable resource and it's really important to archaeologists exactly where things are on a wreck Um, we can learn so much from them good asks and i want to also come back because we talked earlier about how people can record if they find these like weird spots in the reef right so I don't know here in Florida who you would reach out to. I like my understanding was that you would keep it a big secret and see how you can get <laughs> the rights to it. <laughs> so coming back to that conversation. But if I were on the Great Barrier Reef, <laughs> what would you do? Yeah, so I think that anywhere that has shipwrecks, you know, I always encourage people to go and report them to the state. That doesn't mean that they're going to keep it secret. That doesn't mean that you're going to never hear from them again. That just means that the people who have the the power to manage and protect these sites know that something's there and that is a great um, step in preserving them for the future. In Florida, I think there's the St. Augustine, the lighthouse program there, there's some wonderful maritime archaeologists down that way so I'm sure they'd they'd happily take a rec report and I would hope that they're like me and that you know if you get the chance to take someone who found the wreck out with you to see the work you do that is like an amazing thing to do in a project to invite the finders along it's sort of an incredible way to share that story with them too yeah that would be if you found it you'd feel kind of invested in it right You know, whether it was like visions of treasure or it was just something you found on the reef, 
Yeah, like your name kind of goes down in the history books, right? Like it'll be in the rec report, it'll be in the database, it'll be something that you can say to your grandkids or your mates down the pub, like I found a rec, this is the work they've done on it. I think that's really awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, if listeners want to find you, connect with you, learn more about you and the work that you do, where's the best place to do so? Best place is Instagram. You can find me as the Shipwreck Mermaid or just Shipwreck Mermaid on Instagram. And there's an email address associated with that. Yeah, that's the easiest one. I'll put a link to that and everything else we chatted about in the show notes. Maddie, thank you so much for being on the show today. This is so much fun. Thank you. I could talk, like I literally could talk for hours about this. So thank you so much for having me and for cutting me short as well. <laughs> it's good. Anytime. Raining me in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, do you want to help the oceans? Have you considered a career in marine biology, but maybe just aren't sure where to start? Head on over to my website, marinebio.life and subscribe to my newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive a free PDF download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community. One person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. <laughs>